Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg. Lord Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, gives the command uh, saying, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so these uh, three places function as uh, you know, the contents page, because uh, Luke will tell us about how the gospel grows and expands in Jerusalem. And now in our passage, uh, it will begin a section of how the gospel bursts out of Jerusalem and goes into Judea and Samaria. So something uh, significant is happening in our passage. And the question we've got to ask is how, right? How did the gospel get out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria? Now, you know, the apostles, they received this very, very clear command from God, you know, from, from the Lord Jesus, you know, Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and then ends of the earth. So surely they would have held a conference strategic meeting, appointed people. Okay, the gospel is growing in Jerusalem already. Now let's plan uh, how we can take it out and bring it to Samaria. You know, surely that was the way it happened. But as you can see from the scripture reading, that was not how in fact it happened. In fact, what happened was that the apostles, the disciples, they were happy with continuing to minister in Jerusalem. I mean, probably they were thinking, let's consolidate first. Let's really build up our young, fledgling church. And then when, you know, uh, we've built up enough of our core members, when there are enough uh, deacons, and then maybe we can plan for the next advance. Well, you can see that that was not how it happened because God used persecution to get the gospel out of Jerusalem and uh, forwards according to his plan. And we see as the gospel goes into Samaria, it meets magic. And magic here you need to understand as uh, the demon power, satanic power. And uh, you see in the last story, uh, God sovereignly using angels, talking to Philip, bringing him to talk to this Ethiopian eunuch. So in our outline, you can see we got persecution, we got magic, and we got God's sovereignty. Okay, so how does this whole passage tie together? Let me give you uh, the big idea as I understand it. And the big idea is this, whether facing persecution or up against demonic sorcery, the risen Lord Jesus is the one who is leading the mission. Whether against persecution or demonic sorcery, it is God who is in control and fulfilling his saving purposes. So that what seemed a disaster actually results in a successful mission that is not part of human planning. So that's what we're going to see together, I hope, as we work through Acts chapter 8. Uh, And let's uh, ask God to help us as we look into his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you are so kind and so gracious to bring us together 
that we may hear and know and be convinced of your purposes. Uh, Please teach us through your word. Please teach us by your spirit uh, that we may know and see you as the God who saves you and your saving purposes and your determination to keep them uh, more clearly and what this means for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see at the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 8, Saul approved of their killing him. And this is referring to the stoning of Stephen. This is not some lethal injection, you know, clean. This was with stones. This was with blood. This was with uh, Stephen's blood on the pavement. Okay, so that has happened. And uh, that started this great persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And we are told, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So what the book of Acts will teach us, and what indeed the whole New Testament will teach us, is that persecution, uh, suffering, it is all part of the normal Christian life. It's part of the normal Christian life because the Savior, the Lord that we follow, is a suffering, a crucified Savior. So his disciples, his followers, it is normal for them to suffer. So this means uh, for most of us here, we are leading an abnormal Christian life. But for most Christians throughout the world, in church history, and even today, uh, they face uh, levels of persecution and suffering. And the Bible wants to emphasize and teach that that's normal. A few years ago, I was reading this book called The Heavenly Man, which is about Brother Yun, uh, a pastor in China who uh, suffered greatly for his faith. He was tortured. He was in prison. And Brother Yun was involved in a program, okay, get this, that was trying to raise up 100,000 missionaries from China, okay, to send out to what to them were more needy countries, you know, Islamic countries, Hindu countries nearby. So he was involved in this movement that tried to train up 100,000 missionaries. And in a book he says, uh, this is part of the training that they gave to uh, the potential missionaries. Okay, uh, Subjects include, number one, how to suffer and die for the Lord. We examine what the Bible says about suffering and how the Lord's people have laid down their lives for the advance of the gospel throughout history. That's the first subject. Second subject, how to witness for the Lord. We teach how to witness for the Lord under any circumstances, on trains or buses, or even in the back of a police van on the way to the execution ground. Number three, how to escape for the Lord. We teach the missionaries special skills, such as how to free themselves from handcuffs and how to jump from second-story windows without injuring themselves. Now, when I was uh, preaching during the first service, one of the lecturers from ETCA was just sitting right there, and I said to him, surely uh, the syllabus at ETCA doesn't include this, right? I mean, and and our, our intern, Nick, spent three years with us, but in that time, he learned many things, but... One of the things he didn't learn was how to escape from handcuffs. But you see, the reason they teach all this is because the Chinese Christians, they are aware that suffering, being persecuted, 
is part of the normal Christian life. And so we see that happening to the church in Jerusalem. Persecution broke out. And everyone except the apostles were scattered. And where were they scattered? Now, when you have read the contents page of Acts, and when you see here where they were scattered, you must two and two add together, become four, right? Because they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That must ring a bell. And then in verse 4, we are told those who have been scattered preach the word wherever they went. See, it wasn't by human planning. It wasn't by the apostles appointing people and sending them out. God used persecution. The enemies of the cross, the evil one, were trying to use persecution to stop the spread of the gospel. But God uses it instead to spread it, to bring it to the next stage of his plan. Out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. And the way Luke tells the story is he focuses now on Philip, <clears throat> one individual. And the significant thing is that Philip is not an apostle because the apostles are all left in Jerusalem. So the significant thing is that for the first time now, someone other than an apostle is preaching uh, the gospel. And so Philip, he goes, he goes to a city in Samaria and verse 5, proclaim the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So what's happening here is that uh, Philip is preaching the gospel, and accompanying his preaching are these signs and wonders. Uh, demons being cast out, the lame, the paralyzed being healed. Does it sound familiar? Yes, that was exactly what accompanied the apostles' preaching. And so Luke tells us this because this was God verifying that the message Philip, who is a non-apostle, this non-apostle, this message that this non-apostle is preaching is the same message that the apostles were preaching. So God is verifying that yes, not just the apostles can preach, even non-apostles can bring the gospel to new ground. And he's preaching to uh, Samaritans. Now, who are these Samaritans? I mean, like Samaritans, Barmitans, I mean, who are these people, right? Uh, Samaritans are very significant. They're actually the descendants of the ten tribes. So when you say a Jew... A Jew is a descendant of the southern kingdom, the two tribes, okay, from Judah. But when you say Samaritan, Samaritans actually come from the ten tribes who formed the northern kingdom. They were invaded by Assyria and they intermarried such that none of them are pure Jews anymore. So racially, they are mixed. And then religiously, they also believed a deviant form of Judaism. So the Jews looked down on them. They looked down on them as being half-breeds, not pure Jews. And they also looked down on them because what they believe is also corrupted, you know, contaminated version of Judaism. Now, one of the best examples of uh, how Jews looked down on Samaritans is found in John chapter 8, when the Jews are so angry with Jesus. Okay, They, they do not like what he's teaching, and so 
they, 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 they use the best of their abilities and they insult Jesus. They call him, you are demon possessed. Okay, that is not a nice thing to say to someone. And they also say, you are a Samaritan. You see, ah, Samaritan. So, um, clearly the Jews despise the Samaritans. And Philip is here preaching, bringing the gospel to the Samaritans. And what is their response? They are listening. They, play, they pay close attention to what he's saying. And the reason for that is because verse 7 tells us, for with you know, these signs and wonders, it accompany his preaching. Now I want you to see that it is uh, no small thing for Philip to go into Samaria and preach the gospel and for them to pay attention to him. Because what the people in Samaria were used to were great supernatural signs. Okay, that is why we are told about Simon. Verse 9, there was this guy called Simon who practiced sorcery in the city and he amazed all the people of Samaria. So for a long time already, the people of Samaria were used to signs. They were used to demonstrations of spiritual power. So this guy, Simon, he boasted that he was someone great. And verse 10, all the people high and low, they gave him their attention. They exclaimed, this man rightly is called the great power of God. I mean, he, the signs and the wonders and the supernatural demonstrations he showed were so great, so powerful that they said, oh, this one must be divine. This must be a divine man. This must be, you know, from God. But obviously it is not from God. Like I said, because it is demonic power, it is in fact from Satan. And so it is no small thing for Philip to go there in this situation and for the people to to turn their attention away from Simon and focus on Philip. Because what they've had was something great already, which shows that what Philip was doing was a, a power that was even greater. See, it's a bit like if I tell you that last week I shaved off five seconds from my 200 meter sprint timing. You might be impressed until you know what was my previous best timing, which was 37 seconds minus 5 seconds is 32 seconds, which is the speed of a primary 6 pupil. So it's actually not that great. But when you hear, wow, 5 seconds better, it sounds like a lot. So now we are told what the Samaritans are used to is actually this great demonstration of power. So that when Philip goes there and he gets their attention, we realize that God in causing the gospel now to go to Samaria. What would have been a contest against demonic power becomes no contest at all. Because God is fulfilling His purpose of getting, fulfilling His saving purpose into Samaria. Such as Simon, who is that great magical power wielder, uh, he, even he recognizes a greater power is at work in Philip. So the Samaritans believe, they hear the gospel, they believe, and they are baptized. And then something strange happens in verse 14. The apostles in Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. You know, word gets back to HQ, 
the apostles hear of it and they send Peter and John to Samaria to check it out. So what they find when they arrive is that there are new believers and for some reason they know that these new believers have not received the Holy Spirit. Now isn't that strange? They have believed, they've been baptized, but they have not received the Holy Spirit. So verse uh, verse 16, uh, 15, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and then they received the Spirit. Now, one commentator has said that this is one of the most astounding passages in the book of Acts. How is it that these people can believe, get baptized, and then only later, with the laying of hands of the apostles, then they receive the Holy Spirit? Now, this passage has led to the Pentecostals forming the theology uh, of a two-stage process of becoming a Christian. That the way you become a Christian, yes, you can believe first, you can hear the gospel and you can believe, but then only later on, uh, when church leaders or people lay their hands on you, and then later on, then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And in Pentecostal theology, that uh, second stage coming of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by the speaking of tongues. So they built their whole understanding on this passage, which I think is a mistake to do. Because this passage is abnormal. Everywhere else in the New Testament that talks about uh, believing and converting, you know, coming to the faith, everywhere uh, in the New Testament that talks about it, the norm, what we should expect as normal practice is that the Spirit is given when a person genuinely believes. So something abnormal is happening here. And we need to ask why. Why is this abnormal thing happening here? And in order to understand it rightly, I think it has to do with the significance of the gospel bursting out of Jerusalem and now going into Samaria. You see, with the gospel in Jerusalem, that's very normal. Okay? It's very normal. Very normal. It's very normal. Why is it so? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. It's very normal. Why is it so normal? It's normal because the people in Jerusalem who are receiving the gospel are the Jews. Of course, the Jews should now benefit from God's saving purpose because the Jews are God's people. They are the historic people of God. I mean, they were the ones that, that have the law. They are the ones that, you know, the prophets have, have been proclaiming, you know, the, the prophecies too. So, of course, the Jews should become Christians. But now, as the gospel breaks out of that boundary, moving into Samaria, God, as it were, He withholds the Holy Spirit so that when Peter and John arrive, okay, the apostles themselves, they come, they hear, oh, there, something's happening in Samaria. People are believing. Really? Are they, can, can, can the Samaritans really become Christians? You know, does God's purpose include even them? And so when Peter and John arrive, guess what would convince them? That the Samaritans have truly become Christians. 
I mean, the thing that would really convince them is that they see happening to the Samaritans the same thing that happened to them. So on the day of Pentecost, how did the people know that the apostles have received the Holy Spirit? I mean, God showed, demonstrated in visible and audible ways that the Spirit had come on the apostles. And so now in this Samaritan Pentecost, God is showing Peter and John that the same thing is happening to these Samaritans so that Peter and John, the apostles, can be convinced that the Samaritans have equally become part of the people of God. They have equally and genuinely become part of the church. You see, at each stage, go back to the contents page of Acts, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. In the book of Acts, at each stage, when the, when the, when the gospel breaks into each new territory, you realize that Peter is there. Peter is there, of course, on the day of Pentecost. And now as the gospel breaks into Samaria, Peter is there as well. And when the gospel in the book of Acts breaks out into the ends of the earth as represented by Cornelius the Roman, Peter is the one who is there sharing the gospel with him. See, Peter as the representative of the apostles, as the leader, if he's there himself, if he's there involved, as the gospel breaks into each stage, he can affirm that indeed these people are equally, genuinely the people of God. They are part of the church. The way the Jews, the way the Samaritans have become Christian is by hearing and believing and receiving the Spirit and then getting baptized. The same way the Jews are in is the same way the Samaritans are in. So there's no need for feeling superior or inferior. There's no more despising of the Samaritans. So that is what is happening, I believe, <clears throat> in this uh, astounding passage. Now, through the apostles' laying of hands and the Spirit coming, leads to another problem. And that's in verse 18, when Simon sees and Simon wants. Simon wants to have this ability and he goes to Peter and he says, okay, okay, you know, I'll pay you. I'll give you money. Just give me this ability to lay hands and then have the Spirit come on people. Okay? And then Peter answers, oh, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And then he exhorts uh, Simon to repent. And so the question is, why is this happening? Uh, in this passage, why does Luke tell us about this account? I think just as in the Jerusalem church, after they experienced that day of Pentecost, um, the obstacle that the Jerusalem church faced was external opposition, as well as the devil, uh, the devil trying to derail this young church through internal corruption. So in the Jerusalem church was through Ananias and Sapphira, uh, internal deceit, dishonesty, trying to derail that young church. And so I think the same thing is happening here in this young Samaritan church. The devil trying to use internal corruption. But we are told that this potential problem, this potential obstacle is dealt with. Because God is the one who is leading the mission. 
he is determined that nothing should stop the spread of the gospel in Samaria. He wants it to proceed according to his plans. And so what, what happens at the end in the summary verse, in verse 25, is um, you know, Luke is used to giving summary verses throughout the book of Acts. And I think there's something really significant happening here because he tells us after they further explain, further proclaim the word of the Lord and testify about Jesus, Peter and John return to Jerusalem. And then he drops this footnote that as they return to Jerusalem, they are preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. See, they didn't just go back to Jerusalem. Because Peter and John, they are now convinced, yes, God's saving purpose include even the Samaritans. What Jesus commanded us to do to bring the gospel out, yes, he is determined to do it. And so Peter and John, they, as it were, get in on the plan. They want to align themselves with what God clearly is doing. I mean, you have to be stupid, right? To be Peter and John. You witness what you witness, and then as you go back to Jerusalem, you pass by a Samaritan village, pass by another Samaritan village, and you don't go in there to proclaim, you've got to be some level of stupid. Because what you've seen of God's saving purpose, you now must know, yes, even the Samaritans, God has included them in His saving purpose. And so, what a privilege it is for me to go in there on my way home and proclaim the gospel there because God has people in these villages He wants to save. A significant footnote that Luke drops at the end. Now, the story continues, uh, still focused on Philip, and we come to God's sovereignty and the gospel. This story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, uh, this passage is uh, commonly used as uh, a model of personal evangelism. Okay, you know, when you meet someone on the train, you know, how should you do evangelism? Well, you see, Philip, he didn't just shove the gospel down into the eunuch's mouth, you know. He asked a question, oh, you know, what are you reading? So on the train, you see someone reading something, you don't just try and tell them the gospel, you maybe engage them in conversation first, ask him what he's reading, you know, and then try and steer the conversation to Jesus. Okay? But I want to ask you, when was the last time an angel told you where to go? Because that's what happened to Philip. And when was the last time an angel told you who exactly to speak to? You know, because that was what happened to Philip. So no, I don't think Luke is including this as a model of how to do personal evangelism. I think Luke is writing this to help us understand that in every stage of this eunuch hearing the gospel and getting saved, God is clearly and expressly at work. Through the angel, through giving specific instructions to Philip, through the, the, the eunuch, of all things having the scroll of Isaiah in his hands. And of all things in Isaiah, reading from the clearest part of Isaiah that points to the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection. No, Luke is telling us that God is the one. God is the one who will get the gospel to those he wants saved. 
Luke is telling us that God has a saving purpose and he is determined to accomplish it. So the question is, why this Ethiopian eunuch? Why is God so determined to save this person? Well, let's see what happens. So as we've already said, uh, the angel comes and says to Philip, verse 26, go south, go to this desert road. And then Philip obeys. Now I want you to see that it's uh, not a small thing for Philip to obey. Because where was Philip? Philip was actually having a very successful ministry in Samaria. I mean, he's gone to Samaria and up against their magic, their demonic opposition. He preaches the gospel and God accompanies it with signs and there's fruit. I mean, he's having a growing ministry in Samaria. And then the angel comes and says, get out of this and go to the desert. But Philip goes. Philip obeys. And in the desert, he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch who was just in Jerusalem to worship. So this uh, Ethiopian eunuch is obviously a convert to Judaism. Okay, he believes in the God of the Jews. Okay, that's why he's gone to Jerusalem. He's gone to you know, worship this God. But as a eunuch, he cannot enter the temple. Because it is clearly stated in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, that those who are eunuchs, they are barred. They are excluded. They cannot enter the temple. So this eunuch would have gone as far as he could, you know, did whatever he could to have worshipped the God uh, of the Jews, and probably there, you know, at some great expense, purchased the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he's there reading it, and the Spirit says to Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And so Philip runs up beside the chariot, and he hears the man reading okay, this portion of Isaiah, which is from Isaiah 53. Now, obviously, Philip is quite fit to be able to keep up with a, a, a chariot. Okay? And he hears all that the, the person is reading, and then he asks, do you understand what you're reading? And then the eunuch goes, how can I? Unless someone explains to me. And so, because the, the eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53, the clearest portion in Isaiah, and in fact in the Old Testament, that points to Jesus. So Philip has no trouble from that passage proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the eunuch. And the eunuch believes, the eunuch sees some water, and the eunuch is baptized. And then when they come out of the water, Philip, okay, I mean like this, 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 you know, like gets teleported away and lands somewhere else and, and continues preaching. Okay, like why, why, why is God doing this? I mean, like I said already, God wants to show us in this episode, that he is the one who is clearly at work. He is the one who is sovereignly arranging things. He is the one <coughs> who is getting the gospel to exactly the person he wants to hear the gospel to save that person. And the question we asked was, why? Why this person? Now, what are we told about this person? We are told he is an Ethiopian. We are told that he's a eunuch, 
and we are told that he is the treasurer. We are told these three things, but as the rest of the passage continues, only one aspect of him keeps on being emphasized. So in verse 32, the eunuch was reading. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip. Verse 36, the eunuch said. Verse 38, the eunuch went down. Verse 39, the eunuch did not see him again. So Luke wants to draw our attention to the fact that this person that God sovereignly arranged everything, brought Philip to, this person was a eunuch. And why is it so significant? Because, like I've already said, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 tells us that as a eunuch, he is barred. Because of what he had done to himself or what people did to him, he is excluded. He cannot enter in. And the significant thing is, the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, and three chapters on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, there is a prophecy in Isaiah 56 of God's saving purpose that specifically talks about eunuchs. So if you will join me in turning to Isaiah 56, or if you prefer to just listen to me read it, Isaiah 56 and verse 3. In God's saving purpose, there will come a time when, verse 3, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no you not complain, I am only a dry tree. The time will come when no one should say, the Lord will exclude me. Verse 4, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple. See, the eunuch is barred from entering in, but now in God's saving purpose, God actually says the time will come when I will give them inside my temple, inside the walls of the temple, a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So what is Luke trying to tell us through including this story about the eunuch, that God's saving purpose is now being accomplished. Those who were once far off, those who were once outcast, those who were once excluded because of God's saving purpose, they are now in. They are now in because there is one who went to a humiliating death. There is one who bore our iniquities for us. The passage that the eunuch was reading about that, that lamb that was led to the slaughter, it is now fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that he, as a eunuch who should have been excluded, but because of God's saving purpose, is now in. He is now in. God is the one who is leading this mission. God is the one who will accomplish his saving purpose. Friends, do you behold your God? Do you behold the God who saves? Now, the wrong thing to do in beholding the God who saves is to, uh, like the person who said to William Carey, uh, William Carey, the father of modern missions, who when he expressed his desire to bring the gospel to India, someone said to him, young man, sit down. When God wants to convict the heathen, when God wants to bring the gospel to them, 
He will do it without your help or mine. Now that would be the wrong attitude. See, we've been learning about God. God as the one who is leading the mission. God as the one who will accomplish His saving purpose. But the wrong application is to go, yes, God, you do it. God, I'm sure you have it all under control. I'm sure you know, you'll get a job done and I'm sure you don't need my help. Okay, I'll just get on with life. I'll just you know, benefit from you know, some of the benefits that I have as a Christian. I'll get on with that and I'll look forward to heaven and I'll give praise to the things that you have accomplished. Now, that would be the wrong application. Because God is the one who is leading the mission. He will sovereignly get it done and He sovereignly uses people. He will use available and obedient people. And even when the people are not obedient, like the church in Jerusalem, they had their marching orders. Get it out of Jerusalem, get it to the next stage, Judea, Samaria. But the disciples in Jerusalem, to one extent, they were, you know, let's KIV that. But God in His sovereign purpose will even use persecution. Friends, nothing can stop Him. Nothing will stop His saving purpose. There is no one who is beyond God's ability to save. There might be someone in your mind, you know, a family member, someone at work, that, that you go, okay, okay. I, I cannot imagine this person becoming a Christian. I cannot imagine this person coming to church, warming one of the seats. I, mean, I cannot imagine that. No, you may not be able to imagine it. But friends, when we, when we look at the task of evangelism, we must not look at it with just the task and our puny resources. We must see the task with the background of the God who saves. We must look at each opportunity to share the gospel. We must look at our, our, our colleagues, our family members, and seek to share the gospel with them, confident that behind it all is the God who says whose saving purpose will be accomplished. And we share the gospel with the confidence that He is the one who is at work. So may God enable us to be available and obedient instruments. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.